You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. And welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to begin our proceedings here today by calling out to the helping spirits to be with us. So I call out to your ancestral helping spirits and to mine. I call out to those who walked this earth in their many times and who lived well, who died well, who rose to the challenges of their time and found a way to bring their own medicine to bear on the world. I call out to these ancestors to lean in and to help us, help us all to become a more clever, um, more creative, and better able to apply the skills of a shamanic life in our contemporary world in a way that begins to deeply meet the calling, the need, uh, the great um, calling out from the medicine of our own time. And so as these ancestors lean in to help the living do what we're meant to do here for those who are coming, let us reach through the human ancestors and remember that we have ancestors in every form in this great web of life. And most of them have been here longer than there was ever a human, and they will likely be here after. So we call out to all of those energies in this great web of life. We call out to the great spirits of the land, the spirits of the land, the spirits of nature, and we ask them to be with us here today to help us to remember our own true nature, to draw our energy out of our mind and our stories and our ideas and drop into our hearts and come to understand what it is that the humans are meant to be in that fabric of reality and to surrender to that calling, to that true nature and find a way to become a blessing for all life. And we ask these ancestral helping spirits in their many forms to be with us here today and to help us. And as all of these ancestral helping spirits gather around us, let us take responsibility to gather ourselves. Take a nice deep breath and draw yourself from wherever you might be, multitasking and clicking around and out on the internet and in your meeting and wherever it is that you are to focus yourself now in your mind. Another deep breath to draw your energy from your mind into your heart. A big breath into your heart and draw your energy down into your belly. And from your belly, take a moment and reach your energy out to the earth and take a moment to give thanks. Give thanks for this day. Give thanks for the fact that you are alive, for the profound generosity in the dreaming of the earth that we can change anything as long as we are still alive. We give gratitude for the beauty and the complexity, gratitude for the diversity and the harmony and the way that the earth is showing us in so many ways every day how this is done. And may we surrender to that great teacher Draw those teachings into our heart and let them inform how we go about our own day. So with another nice deep breath, let's send our energy down, down through all the layers of the earth to the very center of the earth and to connect in there to that profound source of power that draws its ability to affect things here on the surface out of darkness, those things that are born in darkness that bring us restoration and rejuvenation and replenishment, that which nourishes us and that which supports all life. We call out to this great generative force that restores and renews in this place of darkness. And we call this energy up, drawing it up through all the layers of the earth, drawing it up into our body where we ask this energy of the earth to help us to understand our own rootedness and place, our own sense of self. Who are we? Where do we stand? What do we stand for? What has heart and meaning in our life? And we ask the energies of the earth to help us to learn how to motivate 
what we do in our life through what has heart and what has meaning. And as we call the energies around us in our life, let us come into better relationship with all those aspects of self within so that we might come into better relationship with each other, particularly those we would label other. And may we call them in, set a place for them at our table, open our minds to them, open to their ideas that they might provoke us into becoming the men and women that we're really born to be. And as we call these energies in, let us learn to be in right relationship with others, right relationship with our environment and right relationship with the spirit world that these relationships become rich and productive and that we all are lifted to our better self through this learning about healthy relationship. And so let's draw that earth energy up as it informs us how to be here in form in a good way. The deep, deep wisdom of manifestation. And if you are listening, you are manifest. And so let us surrender to that wisdom, draw it up into our heart and our head, and let it rise with our energy up and out the top of our head, out through the sky and whatever weather it holds, out through the atmosphere and out into the cosmos, reaching all the way up to the highest power of the universe. And by whatever way you know that energy, however you conceive of it, to reach out to it and connect, to see yourself in it and it in you and draw this energy down, drawing into yourself, drawing into these proceedings, drawing into your day the profound essence energy of blessing. Let it move into you and out through you to your life, the profound energy of protection. Let it move into you and through you and share it out into your life. We call down inspiration and illumination, innovation, and we call in the benevolence of the universe. And as we draw these energies in, drawing it down from our heart into our belly and sending that down into the earth, let us imagine that we can feel this connection of earth to sky and sky to earth. These two great legendary lovers held in high esteem in cosmologies around the world, these two lovers of legend, and may their big love inspire our own hearts to awaken in this day. And let us draw up that crucible of transformation that lives in the human heart and do what we have come here to do, to call up the fiery passions of our belly that know why we are here in this life, the true soul's calling, and draw down the crystal clarity of the mind so that we can begin to get some sense of what that actually is in this life. And let these two energies mix and merge in the heart until we have some memory, some inkling, some deeper clarity of what the gifts are that we bring in this life and how we are going to bring them. And may you find the courage that you need in that beautiful human heart to do something in this day, large or small, to bring those gifts into full manifestation in the world. And for all the profound realms of spirit help that we have to help us to do just that, I give deep, deep gratitude. What May what needs to be said be said and what needs to be heard be heard and may these proceedings go forward in a way that is good for all living things. I want to give enormous gratitude to those of you listeners who donate to the show. Why Shamanism Now is listener supported. And it is only because of listeners like you and your generosity, um, your willingness to offer humble, small, humble offerings and larger offerings and to do so monthly. Many of you have set up monthly payments for all of this. We are deeply grateful. Thank you so much. It helps to keep the show on the air. It helps to keep the archives available at whyshamanismnow.com, allowing anybody who can get onto the internet to access this work. And so thank you all for helping me to make that happen. I'd also like to give thanks to our guest today, Evelyn Reisdyke. Welcome, Evelyn. Well, hello. <laughs> Yay! Evelyn's back! Woohoo! <laughs> because she has yet another book. I'm going to have to ask her a very personal question on this show. But before we get there, just for those of you that don't know because you're new to the show and you haven't checked the archives to realize we have multiple shows already with Evelyn, um, she is a nationally recognized um, shamanic teacher and healer, speaker, artist, and author of Spirit Walking. The Spirit Walker's Guide to Shamanic Tools is another book, beautiful um, 
how to make sacred tools book for many of you who send me that email saying, how do I make a drum? Anyway, um, (laughs) Modern Shamanic Living is another book and The Norse Shaman. And today we're here to talk about a brand new book called The Nepali Shamanic Path that is co-authored or written or creatively made with um, with Bola. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, Evelyn's writings uh, focus on living in harmony with earth, how ancient uh, healing methods support individuals to feel more whole, confident, connected, and empowered. Um, Evelyn's work as a practitioner can be found at spiritpassages.com as well as her classes um, and apprenticeship. And this is with her um, partner and um, true love, <laughs> Allie Knowlton. And um, these two um, are doing beautiful work there. So please feel free to reach out with your questions and your inquiries about classes and other tools like recordings and books that they offer either at evelynreisdyke.com. So I will spell that and involves many Y's. E-V-E-L-Y-N-R-Y-S-D-Y-K.com. The beauty of your name, Evelyn, is once people spell it correctly, they pretty much always find your stuff. That's true. It's not like Christina Pratt. There's like a gajillion. Nobody knows which one we're even talking about. Anyway, you can also go to spiritpassages.com to find everything. All right. So let us talk about the new book here. So, Evelyn, um, once again, thank you for joining us. Oh, and we are live. Um, I can tell I haven't been live here for a while, so I'm a little bit (laughs) off my rhythm here. Um, Anyway, we are live. You may call in at 512-772-1938 if you choose to, or you can Skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site, or you can email me at christina at lastmaskcenter.org. All right. So, Evelyn, why this book now? (laughs) Bola Bola Banstola is the uh, the other person that's uh, whose work this book is really about. Uh, is a phenomenal teacher. He's Nepalese and uh, speaks English very well. So he's taught here in the states and he teaches around Europe and other places in the world. And uh, we've become friends for I don't know well over a decade now. I love his teachings, but when he would teach here in the United States, I could see that there was um, a bridge needed. Western people have a completely different worldview about the sacred and about the nature of um, our interactions with the sacred than Eastern people do. And without that bridge being built, I think it's difficult to really internalize the teachings uh, from Nepal. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to support the work is so powerful, I think, because it's it's coming from a really pure place. It involves a beautiful balance between masculine and feminine, which is uh, unusual today. And it, it... it has this tremendous power. It's a, an intact tradition, which is also pretty rare in our in our world. It has a tremendous, uh, I think, power to transform people's lives. And I wanted to basically amp that up on behalf of Bola. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> you know, m- make it a more accessible um, and provide a kind of uh, guide for people who then, when they're in a workshop with him in person, have this backstory, this um, understanding of where the material comes from and how they can then take it to the next level when they are with him in person, either in a class or if they do one of his uh, journeys to Nepal where you actually travel with him and have uh, teachings in situ, also meetings with shamans there. Okay, so, so if people my, right now are going, me too, me too, me too, can I go, can I go, how how would they find out information about Bola's work and his trip trips? If you look at Nepal Shaman online, you'll find uh, his teachings around, you will find his trips. 
I actually am the host for his English-speaking trip, so you can find that on spiritpassages.com. But a list of all the things he does is on Nepal Shaman, and he is also brilliant on social media. He always posts rituals and experiences that he's having, not only in Nepal, but in the rest of Asia, because he travels extensively. So I would hope that people get online in one of those two ways, either go to his uh, his, uh, website, Nepal Shaman, or check him out on uh, venues like Facebook, because it's a wealth of information. He is uh, very generous with his information. He's generous with his time. He will, if you follow him long enough, you'll be able to kind of get a rhythm of the way of life and the way spirits are honored in Nepal. So even if you are only an armchair traveler, you can have a very rich experience. (laughs) But if you actually climb into an airplane and go for the very long ride to Nepal, uh, I I suggest if you have any inkling that you'd like to do that, that you jump on it because it's really traveling not only to a different country, but to a different world, a different worldview, a different uh, perception. Um, It's like stepping out of ordinary time when you go there in the best sense of the word. You're confronted by the contemporary, of course, but the ancient and the contemporary live side by side there. Mm -hmm. And uh, shamans are still well-respected in the culture. And once you step out of the cities, shamans are still the first line for healing so it's a a remarkable place beautiful so evelyn i did a little bit interrupt you so um we were talking about um building that bridge and sort of why this book now and what was inspiring you was there anything else that you wanted to continue with there well i think one of the interesting differences between Um, Western culture, which kind of uh, arises out of the traditions in the Middle East. You know, we have uh, Judaism and Islam, and we have Christianity kind of as threads, uh, religious threads in our culture. And it's not to say that there aren't lots of diversity, but a lot of our understanding about the sacred in the largest sense of the word in that Western culture comes from those traditions. And in those traditions, there, uh, there is this separation between the human experience and the divine experience. And there are a series of um, tests in terms of behavior, in terms of having, uh, having to have rituals to cleanse you even before you start your life, and then a very strict code about how to proceed through life so that you can then encounter the divine. There is a sense of separation, and and again, there are lots of people who are stretching the boundaries of, for instance, Christianity to include nature, but there is still uh, a sense that animals, for instance, don't have souls. Um, Those kind of, uh, I think of as limitations about um, the experience of the divine, that the experience of the divine is fairly narrow, and it is a specific path that gets you to that goal of experiencing the divine. Eastern traditions take the fact that you are divine as a fact, that no one or no thing can be separate from that oneness, that was one, oneness that really has no name. It's a what-so, as my partner would say. Mm-hmm. And then it's a matter of um, refining and becoming more and more aware of that experience in the self, and recognizing that as you deepen your experience of the sacred within yourself, you also become more and more aware of the depth of the sacred in everything around you. Now, those two worldviews don't fit together very well. It requires a bridge to uh, help us recognize that one is more about separation and one is more about a path of discovering depth. Once we have that understanding of those two differences, and I'm not saying one is better than the other because people find uh, solace and guidance in whatever spiritual tradition that they practice, but to 
shift from one to the other is a, a little bit of a, a culture shock. <laughs> Let's put it that way, even for shamanic practitioners. And I, I think Eastern traditions actually are an easier bridge to shamanism, and uh, they have that understanding of everything being sacred, which is very close to animist belief that there is spirit in everything. So I think there's a little closer bridge there than with the religions of the Levant. That being said, because people are raised in whatever tradition they happen to be raised in, there can be a limitation in place that makes it difficult to work with Eastern traditions, and particularly the fact that some spirits are honored um, that are Hindu deities. So these um, gods and goddesses that are part of the shamanic um, worldview, they are, they are aspects of what is honored in Nepalese shamanism, there can sometimes be a kind of mental or internal roadblock to honoring a divinity that is not the divinity that you were raised with. Mm-hmm. But the way, the way that they are honored in Nepal is for their, um, in two ways. One is that they are excellent teachers. They are divine teachers. So they are gurus in a way. So they, they help us to gain enlightenment. They help us to understand those things that are difficult for a human mind to understand. Secondly, they provide us with role models for behavior. They, like many Indo-European traditions, the Hindu pantheon has this um, human quality to it in that they show us through action what, uh, what makes sense to do and what is not a good idea. So they're teachers in that way as well. And thirdly, the deities that are honored as part of the Nepalese tradition tend to be those that have an alliance with an animal, as most Hindu deities do. They either have a vehicle that they, um, that they may ride or have as a companion, or they themselves are partly animal. So there's that sense of a teacher that has a, a, a particular perspective that would be very helpful for us as a human being. And I'm going to put myself on mute for a minute. And so part of what Evie's talking about, an example would be that is pretty popular these days would be Ganesha, you know, as an exactly. elephant man. Or maybe a little less familiar, but Garuda with a bird Garuda man. or Hanuman. Yeah. Hanuman yeah. is another one. Mm-hmm. And those, uh, Ganesha is a good example. In Nepalese shamanism, he's referred to as Ganipat. Uh, he appears the same way. It's just a different name based on the Nepali language. So he is honored as the first um, being that's honored when you do work. Even though Shiva tends to be one that the uh, uh, shamans honor as a, as a shaman, a shaman teacher, Ganesha has this capacity that is about transformation. He has this capacity of being incredibly learned, incredibly compassionate. And in many senses, he's, he is, even though he is a son of Shiva, he's a son of the Shiva and uh, Pavarati, as, as, even though as he is a son, he teaches his parents lessons. He teaches his parents about patience, about how to work with their anger, how it is possible to miraculously heal. So Ganesh is a wonderful example of what I'm what I've been talking about. Here he is. He's part animal. In fact, it's uh, he his uh, companion animal is a rat. And uh, you are, you always see the old trope of elephants be af- being afraid of mice. Well, that's not the case with Ganesh. He has a wonderful relationship with his rat. And so there is this. Uh, beautiful um, example of here is this deity that is a teacher on so many levels. It's a, uh, the level of um, being magical in that it has this being has the capacity to transform his experience. You know, his father accidentally cuts off his head. He thinks he's a suitor as a young man of his wife 
cuts of his head, and then he realizes, his wife says, uh, that's your son? So he rushes off to the forest and finds the wisest being, which is the elephant. Of course, he has to slay the elephant to get the elephant's head, but oh well. He brings the head back and places it on his son's uh, shoulders, and now Ganesh has this wonderful head, this full of wisdom, full of compassion. And really, that is the shaman's walk in our world, to keep that sense of the wisdom of how everything is interconnected, the deep and profound uh, compassion for all beings, and then how to take that in a light-handed way into the world, because Ganesha plays a flute, Ganesha dances. He has this profound wisdom, but it always has a light touch, and compassion gives us that light touch. You can be very fierce. You know, he also has weapons. But it's weapons to defend, weapons to um, defend somebody from illness, to support the green growing things. It's, it's that action of the shaman. And so what you're really offering here for people is just the understanding of, you know, why did, why did you need to build a bridge? You know, you built a beautiful bridge. Um, thank you. Uh, but why? And, and it's really speaking to the depth of the, as you said, the different sort of unconscious cosmologies that people move from. As you're talking about Ganesha, though, I'm, I'm, I'm recalling a couple shows back when you, we were talking, same question, really, like, why did you write um, Spirit Walker, right? And you were just talking about shamanic power. And so I'm wondering if you think about Bola in this work, what was it about the shamanic power that you saw in this work that also really captured, I mean, you've been studying shamanism for a gajillion years, right? All over the world. So what, you know, what captured you here? I think what I, I love best, first of all, there is a, a real balance and harmony between masculine and feminine energies. If a deity presents itself as male, there's still a female aspect of it. There's a feminine aspect of it. Uh, there, you think of the uh, chief goddess, Durga, who has something like a hundred aspects, a hundred different expressions of, as goddesses, nine of which are honored in the big holiday in the fall of Dashain. So the, she's kind of that great goddess of the Neolithic expressed as a multitude. And yet she has this masculine aspect as well. She has this taking action in the world, being fierce. She has an aspect that is more like Kali. So it, there's um, this, this sense of both energies are always present no matter what the face is that is in front of you. And that understanding of the world without duality. You know, there, there is a multiplicity of expression, but it's, it's never in conflict you know, we experience duality so much. I mean, it's on display here in our culture right now, here in the U.S. of A. <clears throat> it's the land of duality at the moment. And so we, are, we might find this jarring to think that it's possible to um, have these both energies present in kind of an equal way, no matter what spirit is in front of you. They may be operating more from a masculine energy or more from a feminine energy. They may have um, a form that is more masculine or feminine, and yet both energies are present, and that's ex uh, explicitly understood by the Nepalese shaman. The other thing that I find really appealing is the uh, continual use of ritual, and I outlined uh, several rituals in uh, and with how to i'm really good at the uh, i like to do the how to pick it apart so somebody else could pick it up and do it on their own <clears throat> it, just talking about it is not enough i think hands-on is really important when you're talking about shamanism hands and hearts on perhaps and uh ritual is such a uh, an important thread through the nepalese year 
all these spirits are honored in very concrete ways. They are fed. They are honored with beauty in terms of flour and the scent of incense and actual food or milk or whatever it might be. They are fed throughout the entire year, and there are special occasions for all these different spirits to be attended to. So you are continually reminded in that tradition about these other beings, seen or unseen, that are so tangible, even though you cannot perceive them with your senses, they are so tangible that they require food. They are so tangible that they require drink. They require honoring by us, not only to remind us of their reality, but to keep that flow of life going. So ritual is so key in that, in that culture, and I think it really helps particularly Western practitioners who can be so mental. And I don't mean that like, oh, you're so mental, man. But we tend to be head-oriented. It well, helps. Go I was going to say, and, ex- and approach our relationships with our helping spirits from a place of entitlement. Like right. they should just show up and we don't actually have to do anything and they'll always be there. And the truth is they are. But what quality is that relationship? And you're talking about how do we as humans feed that relationship so the helping spirits become really tangible in our life. Um, Not just who we meet in a journey in our head, but who we greet in the morning as we get up. Right. And and that is a given. That happens every single day. But then all through the year, there are rituals that are shared among lots of people. So you know it's the day, for instance, to honor the Nagas, who are the water spirits. They're also part of the divine pillar that supports Mother Earth, Dartimata, or Bumi Devi is her other name. So there's this wonderful uh, image that's used. In creation, there was this great cosmic ocean, and out of the cosmic ocean rose a conch shell. And upon this giant conch shell, the Nagas, who of course were swimming through that cosmic ocean, thought what a wonderful place to get up out of the water for a while and bask in the warmth, dry out a little bit. Well, as soon as the Nagas got on top of the conch shell, out of the cosmic ocean swam a giant turtle. And the turtle too thought, oh, a wonderful place to climb out of the water and climbed onto the back of the serpents. Well, no sooner than the turtle arriving on the surface of these great serpents, which is sometimes seen as many serpents or one serpent with innumerable heads, cobra-type heads, on top of the tortoise arrive eight elephants, and eight elephants that take up all the cardinal directions. They face tail to tail with their heads out in all the directions. And then on top of that and you, you know, you're going on and on and on and on up this tower, and finally, Mother Earth has a place to rest. And from her place on this tippy tower, <laughs> this divine, this divine pillar, she gives birth to everything in the world. So there's even in that story, there's this sense of all these things are required. That cosmic ocean is required, and the water spirits are required, and the 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 tortoise, the turtle is required, and the elephants and the lotus blossoms, and all of the things that are part of that divine pillar are what is sustaining creation. So, even in the stories that are told, when the divine pillar is honored. You're helping to support the balance of the divine pillar because it's, it's said when the Nagas shift or the elephants move that we have earthquakes, right? Because everybody has to shift position once in a while. So to help keep that harmony and balance, you do offerings. You do a ritual to help support the integrity of that pillar. You're, you're actually supporting the integrity of life continuing. Darti Mata Bhumi Devi continues to give birth to creation. So you are participating in that way. What I love is it becomes a participatory dance. We're participating in the harmony that is not just 
our own lives, but we're participating in the harmony that continues life, life for all beings. And those kind of rituals, I think, are, are incredibly fruitful in transforming one's perspective about their place in the world as a human being, their place in the world as a shamanic practitioner. And I think it begins to shift your idea about the world around you. And so as you move through the year, as you move through the book, you learn about these kind of spirits that provide doorways for us. You know, in many ways, we need, we need doorways to help us to um, perceive that which is not perceivable with our senses. So one doorway is a journey. But beings can also be a, a, a doorway for us. We gain relationship with a particular being, and they provide us a, another bridge. I know we're talking about kind of a series of bridges here. Uh, another bridge to this idea of continuance. You know, continuance is a, a concept that we can think of in a small way, but when you think about this, this imagery of this divine pillar, you are encouraging continuance. Just the way the cycle of the seasons run, the way life continues, the way life does its work, imagine that idea that you are actually participating in keeping that going. I think that this is uh, something that often is lacking in the training of Western practitioners and, and the very simple recognition that in that participation, um, I'm engaging in creating a different quality of relationship, not only with my helping spirits, but the whole world around me. So Evie, you brought up the um, cosmic ocean. And so it kind of takes us to the beginning. <laughs> Everything has a beginning, as you say in the book. So could let's dive into the book a bit and and begin though with sharing um, from the Nepalese point of view what what does it really mean to have this experience of having power that can and engaging with it in a way that it can involve evolve and flourish versus power loss and losing power so how how is that sort of basic human piece understood in this larger system? In, in my understanding, in, in my body, in my translation, what I see when I am with Bola is a wonderful example. I see someone who is very much uh, engaged in ordinary reality. He loves his cell phone and he loves to do all those things that everybody else does. But they are done in a context of understanding that they are secondary to what is the true reality, which is the invisible world. So it's, it's kind of the complete flip of the way we operate. We, are, we think of the concrete sensual world as the real world, and then we have to step out of it to experience the spirit world. What I see is Bola stepping out of the spirit world to do the earth plane. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's this totally different experience because he is steeped culturally he, he was taught a lot of what he learned initially from his uh, father slash grandfather. He, his, uh, he was raised by his grandparents. His grandfather now, I think, is 103 or 104. His grandmother is, uh, he refers to his father. And the woman who he refers to as mother, I think, is in, up in, in her high 90s. <laughs> so they are really practicing a tradition of 100 years ago because they learned it from their parents. And so he has this context of, unless we attend to the invisible world, the visible world does not exist. And Westerners tend to attend to the physical world and then take time out of that to visit with the invisible world and use it. And again, this is not a judgment, but... We use it for nurturance and for a sense of understanding, but that is a very different way of operating. 
you know, you understood the the invisible world was really the and really understood not just intellectually but in a visceral way that the invisible world was more essential was required more of our attention than the physical world for us to be well and not only for us to be well but for everything around us to be healthy and in balance and in harmony imagine how differently our culture would operate human culture in general would operate because that difference is quite profound when bola visits somewhere he is tuning into the spirits of place first and then negotiating like okay where's the hotel Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it, and that 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 allows him also to be incredibly gracious when he, he stayed here for uh, many years when he was teaching here. And what I saw was uh, a man who was capable of being incredibly gracious and clear, but gracious under pressure. He uh, at one point he his. Um, the airline he had flown um, didn't seem to have tickets for him suddenly. You know, we do this land of e-tickets, and he's very savvy in traveling. And so he had to spend a long phone call um, talking to the airlines. And now, after a lo- you know, halfway through a long phone call, most of us would become pretty frustrated and start to get agitated. At no point did Bola get agitated. Because in his worldview, he knew attending to the energy would make it work. And so he was attending to the energy of harmony, being very pleasant to the person on the phone, engaging with all of his helpers, and somehow, some way, he knew it was going to be fine. And it wasn't like, I think it's going to be fine. He knew it was going to be fine. And seeing that in operation is really breathtaking because that comes from being embedded in a culture that understands that the invisible, the world of the spirits, is the primary focus. It's the primary focus. You're focused on what we would refer to as divine and attending to it because it's not a passive place. You have to be in in relationship, attending to that relationship all the time. And that our life arises from that. It, you know, it's, it's a totally different worldview, again. And t- to help people to see that and begin to, through the rituals, through the stories that are in there. Bola has t- talked, uh, told some wonderful stories that are in the book. He has shared uh, the nature of several rituals. And that begins to put people in a different mindset. I think we as Western-trained people, you know, left hemisphere, linear thinkers, by and large, uh, in fact, those that are not linear thinkers tend to be uh, shunted to the side as uh, artists, poets, writers, or people with some kind of disability. So our visionaries are sort of fringe people in our culture. To help us to to understand that there that a huge population of the world does not operate that way, and in fact, our ancestors didn't operate that way. Our ancestors, our deep ancestors, prior to patriarchal traditions, our deep ancestors understood the world in that way. Understood that the world itself needed to be nurtured. If we were going to make withdrawals, we had to make deposits. We had to make deposits into the world of spirit, feed it, nurture it, attend to it, if we expected to be able to eat, be able to find water, and find game, find what we needed to make shelter or clothing. So it's it, by looking at the Nepalese culture, I think it's another pathway to remember uh, in the opposite of being dismembered, to remember an older way of being, even though it's in a context that that is uh, very Nepalese, you're still beginning to understand the way all human ancestors once understood the world. 
and I think that's part of why I, I love to look at traditions that have held on to threads of the shamanic past because it's like um, finding all these puzzle pieces to help us put together a picture that will put us back in the place where we, we understand about balance and harmony in nature among human beings, between human beings and other species. We have to remember that if we stand any chance of survival as a species. Well, we Evie, I think in- you've, yeah, you've made it very clear how, you know, this, this sort of natural, if you're Nepalese, your sort of natural way that you think about the world is, is all, you know, sort of already in alignment with the type of relationships with the world that, that are really the part of um, make up shamanism, a, sh- a shamanic practice, regardless of what culture we're talking about, these um, practices are rooted in oneness with all things and in all of these qualities that you're talking about. And so, so for, for someone who's practicing right now, but listening to and realizing, you know, I haven't made, I haven't crossed that bridge yet. I'm still just a Western person doing shamanic things. You know, this, it seems that this book could be a good bridge, um, not to Nepalese shamanism, but via this bridge to understanding how they could essentially inspirit their own shamanic practice differently. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So one of my favorite experiences of learning about in Nepalese shamanism many, many years ago is just their whole relationship with initiation. So could we shift gears a little bit and have you talk with us about these kind of the, these four paths of initiation and just the, the rich tapestry of initiation in um, Nepalese shamanism? Mm. Absolutely. So typically in the West, we uh, are either called by an illness still, and, and t- they tend to be um, mental slash emotional um, illnesses, though they can be physical. I think that in large part, a lot, um, Western practitioners are often called from that feeling of being dispirited in some form. And so they have a, a form of initiatory illness, and so then they seek a teacher. So those are two things, uh, initiatory illness and a teacher. In Nepalese shamanism, you have a, a broader um, possibility. One is you have an initiatory illness that is... Um, it doesn't seem to have a reason. You know, it's, it's mysterious in some way and difficult to heal. One would argue um, um, autoimmune disorders in the West would certainly fit that category where suddenly you have this issue that there doesn't make sense. The body is attacking itself or you fall into a, into a fugue state and can't arouse yourself. The second is to seek out a teacher because maybe dreams have called you in that direction. So that's another way in the Nepalese path. You're, you're called to it in some strong way. A third way is that you inherit the spirit of ancestral shamans. You are driven by your, your heritage to take on the mantle of being a shaman. You are, you are being pushed by the ancestors to follow that path. It is a path that has been there for generations. In Bola's case, it's 27 consecutive generations. And uh, so you're being pushed by your ancestors to follow that path. And the third one, uh, the fourth one, I should say, I'm actually pointing to my fourth finger and saying three. This is not good. (laughs) So... uh, the fourth is probably the most unusual way, and that is to have an initiate kidnapped by the forest shaman Banjakri. Banjakri is a appears as a golden dwarf, covered in golden fur. He has his hair on top of his head in that uh, wild kind of top knot, like Shiva has. It's curled on his head, and it comes to kind of a point at the top. 
And he has an unusual physiology in that besides being a hairy dwarf, his feet are on backwards. So when you see his paths in the woods, you think he's going away from you. He's actually headed toward you. Manchakri is the wise forest shaman. He's kind of the, the, um, the one who is embedded into nature. He also has a wife. His wife is Banjakrini, and she is kind of the opposite in many ways of Banjakri. Banjakri is uh, gentle. He is a, a strong teacher, but he is, you know, he's got more patience. Banjakrini, on the other hand, is very large. She has dark hair. She looks kind of more like a, a Bigfoot. She carries weapons. She has uh, scythes and, and knives. She has a, a bamboo gathering basket on her back, and she is the one that tests the sincerity of the neophyte. <laughs> so Banjakri wants to teach you, and Banjakrini threatens to eat you. And between those two, you learn not only the information and the wisdom being passed to you, but you also learn the wisdom of what it means to carry power, how you have to respect power. And the dance between these two remarkable teachers who look very, very different is to give you that sense of what I'm carrying requires respect. What I'm carrying is, is power that can be dangerous. It can be refined into being uh, a force for healing, for harmony, for balance. It can be something that provides teachings, or it can be destructive. Energy is neutral. These teachings are neutral in a way. And when a neophyte is, is kidnapped by this divine couple, they learn a wealth of information sometimes just overnight or in a couple of days. They're only out of the ordinary world for a brief period of time. And yet they've had this incredible long period of time teaching, kind of like uh, Rip Van Winkle. You know, he doesn't seem like time really passes for Rip Van Winkle, but when he comes back, it's a long period of time, and it's it's the exact opposite when a neophyte in Nepal. They're only gone for a short period of time, but they spent a very long time in the spirit world with Banjakri and Banjakrini. So they're given this um, this sense of the fearsomeness of power, the respect one has to have for power, the respect one has to have for the teachings, the respect one has to give to doing the ceremonies in the right way, and I don't mean in a rote way, but in a intentional, um, coming from the heart in a good way. And that combination I think makes for a beautifully well-rounded shamanic practitioner or shaman because you're not just getting a body of teachings and then you go home and figure it out. You're being threatened in some way by this other spirit that is putting the literal fear of God in you about do you understand how powerful this is? Do you understand that you are playing in a field that is is fraught with danger but really the the what it is fraught with is responsibility yeah it's fraught with the responsibility for the power that you have taken on so when that neophyte comes out they then have to have a human teacher because it's such a rock you back on your heels experience they have to then be taken through a second initiation by a human teacher this is a, a really important point. Um, this, again, like I said, it's part of what I really enjoyed about uh, ne- venturing into Nepalese shamanism. But in particular today, you know, you and I are easily 30 years into our practice. This wasn't quite the same 30 years ago, but the ease by which someone believes that they've been labeled, you know, been given the set of teachings they need and now they're ready to practice as a shamanic healer. And yet my experience with them is if you start to talk with them about having accepted this mantle of power, they have no idea what you're talking about. 
So right. there's none of this understanding of this fearsome responsibility um, that you must step into if you're going to carry um, this set of teachings and and endeavor to use them responsibly in the world. And there is this idea, and it's just an idea, it's only an idea deep, that all that matters is my good intention. As long as I hold my good intention, all will be well, which just speaks to such a profound lack of understanding, which to me isn't on the student's head. It's on the teacher's head for not having introduced them to the kinds of uncomfortable experiences that help us to understand what it means to carry a mantle of power like this and use it well in the world. Um, and, you know, part of it is our Western sort of refusal to be uncomfortable. <laughs> well, and refusal to take responsibility and, you know, refusal to um, feel an authority outside of ourselves. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a list. I refusal we... to take time to learn something. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I think there's a general resistance to, um, to the unknown, to uh, uh, an idea that there is something that is more powerful than you, that you need to interact with in a way that is respectful. I mean, I, and I, you know, something uh, that probably is betraying my age, there are ways that I learn to speak to elders that are not necessary, uh, not necessarily followed um, in our current world. <laughs> there are ways that I was taught to teach, to talk to a teacher, to speak with a teacher or an elder that uh, are more in line with how we need to be in relationship with other people and the spirits and the natural world that I don't see expressed as readily today. And not to think that that is old fashioned, but when one is respectful, respectful not in a, in a nod to respect and to say sir or ma'am i don't mean that but deeply respectful that the the being that you are with has wisdom that you don't have because every human being for instance has had a life path that may not be readily visible when you sit in front of them they carry a wisdom it may not be a wisdom that you understand. It may not even be a wisdom that you want to know. Nevertheless, there is a wisdom there that needs to be honored, that needs to be respected. There is that um, sense also of the rest of the natural world, animals being respected, the trees being respected as beings, everything being respected as, as, a, as an elder. Because they were here, as you said earlier in your invocation, Nature has been here longer than human beings have. Nature has been here before primates. Nature has been here before there were um, beings with backbones. You know, nature is this um, organism that each one of us is only a, a little tiny cell in. And all of that working together makes life possible. And, and it is as fragile in some ways as that divine pillar in the Nepalese tradition. You know, it's, it's capable of being rocked very easily by one of the pieces of that divine pillar. You know, if an elephant suddenly has a, an itch and they scratch, it's going to make that pillar tippy. And so each one of our actions and our reactions, because oftentimes our reactions are a lot more disturbing than our actions, can cause this um, pillar, this organism of nature, of which we are a part, to, to shake, to become out of balance, to become disturbed. And we're certainly seeing evidence of that now in the yeah. world around us. Well, Evelyn, I can't believe this, but we've actually just plowed our way through our first hour. <laughs> so <laughs> I am going to invite everyone to consider how you carry your power in your life as you go through this next week. And we'll be back next week with Evelyn Reisdyke and part two talking here about the Nepalese shamanic path. 
Thank you, Evelyn. So I want to thank the ancestors for gathering around us here today for the earth below, the sky above, and that heart that unites us all. Everyone have a great week as you consider carrying your mantle of power. Bye-bye, mm -hmm. folks. <laughs>